you want to open your Bible, we're going to start out in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 13. Being able to see where you're going is an important thing, is it not? It's an important thing. To not see, but then to move forward or backward can be a very damaging proposition. I remember early in my 20s, I borrowed my sister's car to run an errand for her up in Washington. I didn't have my own car, and so she graciously lent it to me. We were working for our family's business, and so I drove up to Washington and uh, did the, the uh, uh, errand that she wanted me to do. I was in my early 20s, and I was all about getting the job done and moving on, and so I dropped off some workers there at the construction site, didn't look around the car to see what was going on, but the drive was long and I needed to get back. So after I was done dropping off the workers and finishing off the errands, I jumped in her car and I started to back up because there was something in front of me, but I had not walked around the car to see what was there. I thought that because I could see nothing in my rearview mirror, I was okay to back up. Has anyone else ever done this? Yeah? You kind of sheepishly are raising your hand there. I didn't realize that there was a tree stump with an extended branch just below the window, and I ended up ramming the car directly into it. Even at a very slow speed, I dented it pretty badly. I went, even though my senses and my experience told me I could trust my vision, and I really couldn't. I've also shared before the story of when I first learned to snowboard. I just shared it a few weeks ago. I was taken to the top of the highest run on Mount Hood and sent down with no direction other than down. On my third run, a whiteout set in, and I went down the mountain anyway. And I thought, because I could see a foot in front of me, uh, that I had enough vision. By God's grace, at a certain point, I became scared enough and felt the need to stop that I quickly stopped my board just as the snow cleared and I saw that I was at the edge of a cliff about to reap total destruction. My vision in that case was short-sighted and it could have led to death. Would you agree that vision is important? Yes. It's especially important for leaders. Leaders without vision or with vision that is short-sighted, will leave a people impotent and rudderless, wandering through life without purpose or hope. And so today, and each time we move from the study of one book to another, we will refocus as a church, we'll refocus our eyes on the larger vision of this church and where we as elders are leading the church. And so this morning, I want to ask your permission. I know that you are a church that loves exegetical preaching through the Bible, chapter by chapter and book by book verse by, by verse. So I want to ask your permission this morning to indulge a little bit and take this one Sunday to step away from our usual and constant exegetical preaching in order to cast a vision for Mission Fellowship with the ultimate goal of bringing glory to Jesus Christ. Would you allow me to do that? Good, because if you didn't, I would have nothing more to say today. We'll still rely upon Scripture and we'll jump into studying the gospel according to Mark next week, but today, let's all take a breath and look at our vision. And if you are a visitor today, this is actually a great day for you because you can see what we're about as a church and what is important to us. And then I would encourage you to come back next week to see how we go through the Word, starting in the, the gospel according to Mark. So today, we're looking at a Vision Sunday. And the vision for this church that we want to speak to you today is a sanctified church Unified in Proclaiming the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You can write that down. That's the title for the teaching today. A Sanctified Church, Unified in Proclaiming the Gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So let's begin this morning by looking at how seriously the Lord takes the topic of casting vision and how much he holds leaders responsible for that task. Would you take a look there with, with me at Ezekiel 13.1? The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. We'll pause there for a second. Throughout both the Old and New Testament, there is a model that is used when God's people are ruled by God, led by human leaders, and each member of the congregation or assembly is held responsible for the obedience of the whole. We speak this truth kind of like this here at Mission Fellowship. We use this phrase. Mission Fellowship is Jesus-ruled, elder-led, and congregationally responsible. Would you repeat that with me? Mission Fellowship is Jesus-ruled, elder-led, and congregationally responsible. In the past two years, we have been working hard to build a leadership and call that leadership to spiritual and emotional health. As we saw in the congregational meeting yesterday, we have some awesome new elders stepping up in every part of their job. In addition, we have other leaders, new deacons that are being added to the already amazing group of current deacons. We have uh, community group hosts. We have discipleship group facilitators. They're stepping up into every role of the church. But part of the job of the elders is to set the vision of the church and to faithfully preach the word of God and lead and teach out of that foundation. When that is not what is occurring, or leaders are leading out of selfish or unbiblical motivations, God responds with really strong words, as he did here in chapter 13. In our text here, the leaders of Israel, spoken of as prophets, and later we'll see as elders, they're attempting to speak on behalf of God and leading in a direction. But that direction, unfortunately, is completely contrary to God's rule. Keep going with me here in Ezekiel. Let's take a look there. Starting up, uh, where did we leave off? Verse 7, have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying divinations, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false divinations and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel. Notice, guys, there, we are a congregational church. We have a membership role. Notice the language that he's using there. Do you think God has a role of who the members are in his church? Absolutely. His people are enrolled in the register of the house of Israel. Nor shall they enter the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord God, precisely because they have misled my people, saying, Peace, when there is no peace, and because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash, That sounds familiar to any of us who know the New Testament, right? Isn't that what Jesus accuses the Pharisees of? Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. Now, what is this metaphor? This metaphor is is that internally there's brokenness. Internally there's sin. Internally there's uh, idolatry. 
But on the outside, there's a shiny, happy smile. That person, man, they're a person of God. But internally, there's brokenness. That's what he's accusing them of. He goes on and he says, Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, Where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash, and I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord. Now, guys, this is a simple idiomatic way of saying, you guys were saying that God was pleased with you when he absolutely was not and there was sin in your presence. That's what it means. You can say peace all you want, but if there's sin that's undealt with, there's a problem. Well, then he continues on and he gives examples uh, of uh, female prophets that were doing this very thing. But let's skip down through that description for the sake of time to verse 22. He continues on to tell them the characteristics of being false leaders. And he continues with this idea of calling sin okay and not dealing with it. Verse 22, Because you have disheartened the righteous falsely, although I have not grieved him, and you have encouraged the wicked that he should not turn from his evil way to save his life. Guys, this is the false gospel that's preached in many, many churches. It's okay that you sin. God's the God of a thousand chances. You don't need to repent in order to be saved. That's the false gospel. And that's the very gospel that God was saying that Israel was, in a sense, proclaiming. Verse 23, Therefore you shall no more see false visions nor practice divination. I will deliver my people out of your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore, speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet... I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For any of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself, and I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, the Lord, have deceived the prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel, and they shall bear their punishment. The punishment of the prophet and the punishment of the inquirer shall be alike." that the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, declares the Lord God. Now let's break this text down a bit. People had stepped into positions of leadership and really claimed these positions for themselves and were saying they spoke on behalf of God when they were really speaking out of their own feelings, emotions, and their own spirit. 
And so rather than hearing from Yahweh, they were believing their own truth. And because of this, God was against them. One of the main concerns was that they were telling the people they should be at peace and smearing whitewash over broken down walls that could not protect them. This would prove true because when difficulty and conflict or stress or something came against them, no matter how good the white walls looked on the outside, they crumbled under stress. And this showed the true foundation of those leaders' lives. And it became apparent what is at the core and that it was not based on the strength of God and his word. The way that they were found out was that they were people that were accusing the righteous of being wicked and allowing those who were sinning in idolatry to continue in their sin without calling them to repent. And then he targets the elders and says that they are wicked elders because they have taken their idol into their heart. Rather than loving the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, and strength, they allowed the idols that they found comfort in to be their guiding principle. Their heart was the seat of all thinking, attitude, and actions to the ancient Hebrew. And another way of saying this was that rather than casting vision for the glory and proclamation of God's name, they were operating out of a desire to have their own agendas heard. You see, dear church, when God's people fool themselves into believing they are serving God, but they are really serving themselves, God is not pleased. Do you get that from this text? That group is not able to show the truth of who he is, and so he would rather cut them off than allow them to continue saying that they are his and mischaracterizing his name. I bring this story to you because two years ago, we started down a long path of replanting this church. I joke with people now when they ask me how many churches I've planted, I say two, because we planted this church and then replanted. We went down this road of replanting because it was at that point through a number of circumstances and events that I realized our church foundation was built on a number of really unhealthy things. Outside of my own comprehension, I was personally very unhealthy in my need for admiration and affirmation. And the church at the time was a place that existed very much for my own ego. I taught in the way I knew how, which was for me to give running commentary on what I thought a passage was saying, rather than what the context, grammar, and original language stated was the intention of the original author. That kind of teaching shows more about the speaker than it does about the text. And my teaching showed more about my internal nature than it did of what the text actually says. My own internal dysfunction and undealt with emotional issues started to show up at the most inopportune times. And about 50 of you that were here at that time, you can remember a couple of times where it showed up on the stage. And I came to clearly realize through the help of Patrick, one of our other elders, and a couple of our other members, and some of my professors and mentors at seminary, not to mention through my own personal counseling, I quickly came to realize that my internal brokenness was manifesting in sin because I was harming people emotionally and spiritually. Nothing anyone could hold up in a court to say I was doing harm was there. I wasn't committing adultery, I wasn't beating people, but with my words and my attitudes and my actions, I was harming. An underlying constant theme was there that I was acting out of my own feelings rather than the truth of God's word and the truth he was bringing to me through other saints. At that point, as I had to face my own brokenness, we sought, uh, we sought um, assistance from other experienced men and women that were strong in their faith and in their theology 
And we embarked on a journey to change the polity or the structure of this church, along with the way we taught the Bible. We stepped into what has been uh, orthodox over the history of the church in terms of what's called congregational polity or a congregational structure and exegetical preaching, preaching through the Bible in the context of what the original author intended as best we can. I'm sure we make mistakes, but as best we can. And now, after two long years of preaching through Ephesians and Deuteronomy, we have worked to look internally at ourselves as a church to check whether we are obediently following the rule of Christ. We have put leaders in place that have shown themselves to have the name of Christ and its glory as the highest priority over and above themselves. And we have built a structure of shared leadership and shared responsibility where we are better together than apart, where we can each use our gifts and when one of us sins or suffers or rejoices, we can walk through it together as a body in unity. Probably never as perfectly as Christ would if he were here in his physical flesh, but learning all the while and growing in sanctification together. And so I believe we are at a place now where our vision is far more aligned with Christ than we have ever had it in the past. And it's as best we know how at this moment based on his word. And so I think we are in the best position we have truly been in to be, the first point you can write down, a church that makes disciples of Jesus Christ by teaching, equipping, and sending. Mission Fellowship, this is our mission statement. Can you say it with me? Our mission is to be making disciples of Jesus Christ by teaching, equipping, and sending. Let's say it again. Making disciples of Jesus Christ by teaching, equipping, and sending. Raise your hand if it is partly your responsibility to accomplish that mission. Now, if you pause, you may come from a church background where you're waiting for me and the rest of the church leadership to do that. But a healthy church does not rely upon an organizational structure and the people on staff. A healthy church relies upon one another. Amen. The first thing that's there is teaching. This means that we will continue exegetically teaching through the Word of God in the original context to find as best as we can the original intent of the original author. We will continue to teach the narrative arc of Scripture based on strong biblical theology grounded in the history of the core church that developed out of the Protestant Reformation. We will teach that we were created in God's image, but we rebelled against his rule and are therefore dead in our sin and in need of a savior. We will teach that we are the people of God with God's spirit among us and within us because of the death and resurrection and pouring out of the spirit of Jesus Christ. And all the while we are helping uh, we are being helped by the Holy Spirit to reflect Jesus to the world. Secondly, we will equip. We do this right now through our small groups, our community groups and discipleship groups. We're also going to attempt to add something new this year. At the January congregational meeting, we hope to be able to present to you our plan around what are called Sunday seminars. These will be specific and specialized courses and curriculum to develop the theological, biblical, and practical knowledge of the people of Mission Fellowship. I look forward to this initiative getting off of the ground 
And already, uh, Ian Ussery, who is on staff as the director of uh, student and adult education, is doing a fantastic job along with his responsibilities with Rooted. I'm excited about that. With our numbers growing at about 10% a quarter right now, at some point in the next year, we need to be prepared for moving to a second service as well to make more room for people to come and be taught about the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. We will bring that to a future congregational meeting when it gets closer, and we will do this carefully, attempting to find the best path for growth, and in the midst of that, we will continue some really great construction initiatives to make this building into more and more of a home for this church. Third, we want to be sending. We will continue to do our best to assist you by the work of the Holy Spirit in the sanctifying process so that you can be sent out as individuals, as families, as community groups into our surrounding community to reflect the, persons of, the person of Jesus Christ through your lifestyle, your attitude, your actions, and your words, drawing those that are lost to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Also within sending will be our ever-present call to assist the church across the globe. In international missions, we will continue to support the church in Burkina Faso, as you can already see this morning, and we will serve groups like IJM and Mission Aviation Fellowship in their work to bring God's work to the world. We are looking at some other potential partnerships in the area of international missions, which we may bring to a future congregational meeting. In local missions, we're continuing to plan how we can reach out to new communities in Salem and Kaiser and the surrounding areas, including those in our community who might be forgotten or neglected. Potentially new work with DHS and the foster system, among other initiatives that we will be releasing throughout the year. We're still plan in the planning phases of looking at something regarding serving mothers and babies in our community through our church as well. And in the midst of all of this, we will stay firmly planted on what we have learned through Ephesians and Deuteronomy. We will stay firmly planted in what we've learned in those two books. So the next point I want you to write down is this. We will continue to ask what it looks like to be a covenant community. That's what we've learned in both of those books. In the overall understanding of the gospel, the gospel is not just individual. It is certainly that. But it's also collective for a community of God's people. And we've learned that in Ephesians and Deuteronomy. In leaving Deuteronomy, we take with us an understanding that it was the response of the people to the gracious love of Yahweh that was to draw the nations to the knowledge that he was truly the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Likewise, we have that same commission, that the church is to go into all the world and wherever we are planted, from Burkina Faso to Salem, Oregon, we are to make disciples bringing about the obedience of faith and teaching lost people what it is to know salvation and obey all that Christ has commanded us. Amen? So then we have a job as a collective group of individuals. We first need to be drawn together in unity. Question is, is what is unity though? Here's question and answer time. Is unity always agreeing on everything? Good, I'm glad. No, it's not. Unity means dedicating ourselves to and agreeing in the primary issues, such as salvation by grace alone through faith alone, such as submission to Christ as king, such as atonement through Christ's substitutionary death and victorious resurrection, 
such as the call to the church to be the incarnate reflection of Christ to the world by the work of the Holy Spirit within us. We need to agree on these things. And I would heavily suggest that if you don't agree on those things, then maybe this church isn't for you. These are the things that are the basics that are contained in our statement of faith. We do need to be agreed in our sole purpose of making disciples of Jesus Christ by teaching, equipping, and sending. We need to agree that this is our commission from Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We do need to agree that all other self-concern or self-righteousness that will get in the way of that gospel and that commission needs to be dealt with. It needs to be dealt with gently, but quickly and without hesitation. We need to agree that this is a large part of our purpose as a covenant community. This is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be burdened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is also from the writer of Hebrews. See to it that no one fails. Who do you think he's asking to see to it? Us. And in the direct context of the church, Hebrews 13, 17 speaks of the church and the leaders of the church. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Because roots of bitterness are not dealt with in churches, they wreak havoc because one person who is bitter starts to sow that bitterness among people who are willing to listen to it, and it eventually leads to division. It must be dealt with. We need to be united in the covenant commitment we each have with one another, that we will encourage one another to endure, and that we will hold one another accountable to the process of Matthew 18 when a brother or sister will not repent. We need to agree that this is true and it's necessary because we are in the process of growing together into the body of Christ. This is what Ephesians 4 taught us, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Raise your hand if you're a saint. I know that's hard for you, especially if you grew up in the Catholic background, but you are a saint. You are a holy one. So he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. All of us for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, the goal is, is that when people look at us, they see the fullness of Christ. Do you think Jesus would agree with what is often said in churches that, don't worry, church, we know we're all hypocrites, but that's why we needed Jesus. Does that sound like that? No. To the fullness of Jesus Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way in him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part, each member, 
is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, dear church, we each have to bear a part of that. And this is not saying that we each have to be clean. We each have to be pure and perfect. Many of you might have a background that tells you that. Don't bring your sin forward. No, in fact, the way to get to this, dear church, is for you to admit that you are broken, sinful, and in need of a Savior, and to do it vulnerably among a church body that will help you walk through that process. That's why I initiated this teaching with a description of my own brokenness. This church has loved me enough to call me out in the hard things and called me to get help and called me to do the hard work of becoming a better pastor and father and husband, and I am still, still moving in that journey. But that's what we need to be a church that can do. We need to be a church that lays down our brokenness and not worried about abandonment, not worried about being kicked out, but being pursued and called to greater holiness and greater mental and emotional health. That's what Christ is calling us to. We need to agree on these primary issues, but unity does not mean agreement on all issues. That is why we have members here who agree with creedal baptism and those who agree with infant baptism. That is why we have people who believe in egalitarian leadership and those that believe in complementarian leadership. That is why we have Democrats and Republicans and the smart ones who are independents. Sorry. <laughs> Ouch. Let us remember this, dear church, as we go into another election year, and let us realize that our allegiance is first and foremost to Christ as King, and only secondarily to those who hold governmental office. I cannot emphasize that enough. Unity is agreeing on the primary issues, yes, and in all other issues, it is allowing a difference of opinion and giving empathy to those we may not agree with, even when we don't understand their point of view. Unity in those cases is to pursue the same mission anyway and to lay down our personal opinions for the greater glory of God, realizing that our collective answer to the call of Christ is more important than our personal feelings. Amen? Amen. Secondly, we will, call, we will continue to call ourselves to service of one another and of our community. In this area, as in many others, we are only as strong as our weakest link. In this year ahead, each one of us needs to ask the question, why do I serve? Dear church, you have been unified. You have been servant-led. I am amazed, as Tyler said in our congregational meeting, this church blows the normal average church in the United States out of the water in percentage of people tithing and serving and loving. You guys, well done. Well done. At the same time, I realize that service is hard. As I've said before, tithing will not make you richer. It will make you poorer. poorer. Yes, your bank account will have less in it. Okay? Just like service will not give you more energy, it will give you, you'll be tired -er from serving, especially if you do our threes and fours class. I love them, but goodness gracious. Will you be tired -er? Yes, you will. 
For some of you, that question, why do I serve, will bring conviction that you are acting as a consumer. For those of you that don't serve in any capacity, this should bring you conviction that you are acting as a consumer rather than a servant. And that is the case for some of you. And if it is, you need to begin serving the body you call home in some capacity. I would direct you to the info table right after service to sign up for something. But for those of you that do serve, the vast majority of you, well done. You serve so faithfully. But let's ask the question this year, why do I serve? And let's search deep to find the truth. You see, this is what Jesus said should be the reason we serve. This is from Mark, where we'll be in, well, Mark 10. So we'll probably be there in about eight months. <laughs> and Jesus called them, Mark 10, 42 through 45. Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We serve, dear church, because he first served us. And notice that verse 45 is speaking of his death on the cross, paying the ransom to free you and me from the captivity of sin and death and hell. He served even though there was no assurance that you or I would even choose to follow him. I have long said that true service is offering yourself up to get your heart broken by the very people you serve. That's service in the image of Jesus Christ. In doing so, we are laying down our life as Christ did. This is Mark 8, 34 through 35. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him, what's that word there? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Guys, in my story, I was holding on so tightly to what I needed to accomplish that I was about to lose my life. I am not exaggerating when I say I was about to lose my wife, again, not because of adultery, but because I was holding on to my idols too tightly. I was about to lose my church, and I knew that the day five years ago I blew up at the congregation screaming, love one another. You think I was broken and unhealthy? Amen. Say an amen. amen. There you go. It's true. Now, it is healthy and good that we recognize when we have seasons of life where it is unhealthy for us to serve because there's just so much going on, we may need to say no to some options of service. Some of you are in that season of life right now. I am amazed that you're even upright and breathing, let alone serving. And it is okay to take seasons off, to gain strength in those times where you have families that are sick or you are overworked or you are burdened by something. That is good and healthy and okay. And if you come to us as leaders and say, I got, coach, I got I to gotta get a sub, I'm, I'm tired, we will lovingly say, good choice. How can we walk you through that 
And how can we get you to the other side? Too often, though, I fear that service has an expiration date for many of us because we serve for ulterior motives, often hidden even from our own view. Often we step into service not to serve, but to make social connections. That's a good thing, but if it's the main thing and, and our, uh, our, our um, desire for social connections is not met, then it becomes problematic. Maybe we start serving because it will fill our deep need to show people, including our families, parents, and maybe God himself, that we are good enough and they owe us their love. But unfortunately, our expectations are not met when no one sees us or doesn't thank us appropriately enough. And that shows that we have an idol at the core. Maybe we serve or lead because we think that is how our deep unmet need for admiration and affirmation will be met. But again, when it's not, we grow angry and bitter that no one cares. We set up expectations that are unhealthy and dysfunctional. And so we eventually burn out and blame those that did not meet our expectations as I did towards the church five years ago. My anger in yelling love one another was because I didn't feel like I was being loved well enough. And so I responded in pointing the finger at the church rather than doing the, who's got the problem? This guy. That's what I should have done. And so we burn out. We expect service to give us life when in fact, if it is truly in the model of Christ, it will be us giving our life for others. Dear flock, it is so hard to see these things that are within our own hearts, the idols that, like it states in Ezekiel, we have taken into our own hearts. But it is these idols left unchecked that cause cracks in the midst of the covenant community of God. And so this year, as we step into the book of Mark, we will be confronted with the questions, who do you believe Jesus is? Why did he serve? Why did he die? And are you willing to lay down your life, as he did, to be a disciple? If we as a church can ask and answer these questions, we will grow more fully into a covenant community that reflects Christ to the world. For those of us that are struggling with those idols, and maybe even today you recognize and have conviction that these idols are present in your life, this is what we're going to do. In 2020, we will ask the question of what may hold you back from being a faithful disciple. Your job, dear church, is to answer that question and to walk through it. What may hold you back from being a faithful disciple? Not a perfect, but a faithful. A faithful husband is one who makes mistakes and yet walks through the repair necessary. I don't know a perfect husband or a perfect wife, except my own, by the way. <laughs> Just kidding. She knows she's not perfect. In the gospel, according to Mark, we will see that Jesus will be asked the question of what it is to obey the greatest commandment. We got it read to us earlier. Esther read it to us, but let's take a look there. Why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. starting in verse 28. We'll read it again. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Man, this is 
We have not changed that much as a people, have we? How do I get saved? How do I get to heaven? What's the most important thing I have to do, right? We encounter that all the time. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Guys, if you need context on that, there is a year worth of teachings for you to go back and listen to. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. First, Jesus noted loving God. This is hard, a hard one to do because many of us will admit that we don't even know who God is. That's why many of you in this congregation, I'm amazed at the wash of shame that comes over you when the word comes up. Biblical understanding. That's part of why we want to do Sunday seminars is we want to give you the tools so that you don't have to be ashamed anymore. You shouldn't be ashamed in the first place because God's not ashamed of you. You're his daughter or his son. He's calling you to read his word and to know who he is. How do we know who he is? By reading his word and looking to Christ and by seeing him in one another when we are walking in the ways of Christ. But many of us in this room have projected the characteristics of others onto Christ, whether that be parents who have harmed them or siblings who have harmed them or authority figures who have harmed them. And so because of that, we tend to mischaracterize God. And even sometimes hide from him because we don't recognize his identity or our identity in him. I'm amazed, actually not really, but I'm amazed to a certain extent when I sit down in both my secular counseling environment and here as a pastoral counselor and I get down to the nitty gritty of what a person believes about who God is and when they're finally vulnerable enough to tell me what they think about God, they express this picture of a really angry dad who's about to squash them because he's so ashamed of them. Folks, that is not the God of the Bible. That comes more from your experiences and your understanding of harmful, abusive people that has been projected onto God. We tend to mischaracterize God and sometimes hide from him because we don't recognize his identity and our identity in him. We overemphasize one part of him to the detriment of another. We see him as judge rather than loving Father, or maybe the opposite, and we walk in sin because of it. This year, we want to help you work through this brokenness, to be able to see the Father God as the Exodus God, the one who wants to save you from the sin around you and the sin within you. In Mark, we will get to see the goodness of God in incarnate form. And I hope that this, along with all the work so many of you are doing in one-on-one meetings with leaders, or small groups, that it will assist you in knowing God intimately through the Holy Spirit. Second, he noted loving others. Now, this is hard to do because people are hard to love sometimes. Amen? Not me, but everybody else. Of course me. We're all hard to love sometimes. And so many of us in this room came from such broken relationship backgrounds with families or friends or significant others that we look to others to define our identity rather than to Christ. 
And so, rather than standing firm in Christ when another person is struggling, our sinful nature reacts in sinfulness and sometimes unchecked ways. And so brokenness leads to brokenness and members isolate from one another just like in the garden, casting blame on the other rather than loving the other, justifying their own isolation by saying things like, they haven't loved me well, they haven't served me like I have served them. Guys, remember the garden. What did God do? Did he isolate from Adam and Eve? What did he do? He pursued them. He said, where are you at? What did Adam and Eve do? Did they pursue God and pursue one another? Or did they isolate and start blaming? They isolated and started blaming. Dear brothers and sisters, we follow a man that did come and could rightly state to all of us, you have not loved me well. Could he not? In spite of that, he laid down his life in pursuit not to be served, but to serve. He met our brokenness by pursuing us, not isolating from us. This year, we each need to ask ourselves, what is keeping us from having that heart? A church full of people that ask that question and can honestly answer it, oh man, the power of Jesus that's contained in that church. And we need to ask that question because while we can often be busy pointing the finger outward toward external causes, Christ told us that sinful brokenness in human relations actually comes from within. Let's look at what he says in Mark 7:14. Why don't you turn there with me? Mark 7:14 verses 14 through 23. Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This will be a part of what I want to challenge each of us with in the next year. Rather than looking outside of ourselves for the source of hurt, the source of disconnection, the source of anger, let's look inside and ask the question of what is inside our own hearts. Brothers and sisters, can you change any other human being? No. Okay, let's ask that one again. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, can you change any other human being? No. Not without their changing. Who is it that you can control and change? Myself. Myself. Each of us need to ask the question about ourselves. I'm going to be taking our leadership 
through some training on emotional health and its connection to spiritual health. And my hope is that it trickles down to the body in a huge way. And if you're one of those people who come from a conservative Christian background who says, Hans, your counseling background is getting in front of your ability to preach the gospel, you're going to have a rough time here, guys, because Jesus was worried about the internal state of a person. So I'm not Freud. I'm a follower of Christ, but I'm going to help us figure out what's inside. I'm hoping that this will trickle down in a huge way, and I'll eventually pass that on to all of you, possibly in a Sunday seminar. But the core of what we will be looking at and what, we will come up, uh, what will come up in the midst of Mark at times as well, just like in this section, is that a Christian humbles themselves before Christ. And rather than saying, God, look at all those sinners, the Christian says, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. A Christian says that. The Christian humbles himself or herself before God and does the hard work of figuring out what their inclinations and predispositions are with regards to how they hurt people, that we are supposed to be loving. This is part and parcel of the call to repent, to renew our minds, and to live out of the Spirit of God in the example of Christ. Amen? Dear church, I say this with love as a spiritual father. So many of us in here see each other not as brothers or sisters, not as people to be loved, but as threats to our identity, our sense of self, and our sense of worth. We see one another as potential threats of abandonment. Dear church, if you come here for solid teaching, that is awesome, and I'm glad for that. We're glad to have you. But if that teaching does not work its way into changing you from the inside out, so that you actively love God and love one another, then it is a worthless spiritual consumer product. Each of us need to do the hard work of examining our hearts and then vulnerably reaching out to those in this body that we are close with to begin the work of tearing down those walls of isolation that have whitewash on them and those walls of mistrust so that we can instead build healthy relationships that reflect the law of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in reconciliation in our midst. That is why community groups and discipleship groups exist. They are not just a potluck. They are meant to build relationships in which our rough edges and our sinfulness can be sanctified. They collectively work together to provide those relationships and environments for us to work out all that we are learning in a practical nature. Until we start looking internally and pulling up all that holds us back from obedient discipleship and laying it at the feet of Christ, we will be less than what Christ intends for us to be. But if we do that hard work, dear church, then each of us will be able to take challenge and loving correction from one another, knowing that it will not lead to abandonment. And then each of us will be able to go to the people around us and ask the extremely hard question, how do you experience me? And rather than recoiling from their feedback, we'll be able to learn from it. And rather than fight it in defensiveness, we'll be able to embrace it as loving. And then sanctification will take root in a huge way, and we will all begin growing in the image of Christ to a greater degree than ever before. Is that what you want, dear Christian? Is that what you want? Yes. 
If we can be this kind of community, then our call to Salem, Kaiser, and Polk County to come and know the king will be matched with our ability to show who is the king in our love for each other. You see, dear brothers and sisters of Mission Fellowship, this year we want to be a sanctified church united in proclaiming the gospel. Does it sound like we're going to do some work? Does this sound hard? Absolutely. But I know that you can do it because you have the Holy Spirit within you and I have seen your metal tested the last two years. And if you are a visitor, I might be biased, but I think you can find no better church that wants to engage to this level of obedience. That requires each of us to actively pursue the knowledge of God's word and the truth of the gospel. That requires each of us to do our part in seeking out and growing in the midst of sanctification. That requires each of us to do our part in serving and loving one another in covenant commitment to each other. That requires each of us to walk in a state of repentance and humility and seeking after Christ and learning and submission to one another. If we can do that, we can follow Christ as he proclaimed this truth. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We can follow him and we can likewise proclaim not just with our words, but by the very people we have become and the way we love each other in covenant community, that this is true. Jesus, please, Jesus, please rule over Mission Fellowship. Please help our leadership lead in service, in sacrifice, and in a direction that removes our names and makes your name great. And please help each of us to remember our part, our role, and our responsibility in the covenant community you have established here. Dear Jesus, please help us to be a sanctified church, unified in proclaiming your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. As the worship team comes up, let's each take a moment and let's steady ourselves and ask the question, Am I ready to engage in this mission? Am I ready to engage in this mission that's been laid out before me to make disciples of Jesus Christ by teaching, equipping, and sending? Am I ready to engage in this mission to look deep within myself to figure out what it is that's keeping me from walking as a disciple? Am I ready to engage in the mission to proclaim through my life, my actions, and my words that Jesus is the King and He has been enthroned And he has died and resurrected to call men and women to new life in his gospel truth, to repent from their sin and to walk in newness of life with him. Let's take a moment and think about that. And then the worship team is going to lead us in worship and the communion tables are open to either side where you can go and you can take a piece of bread and the cup that symbolizes his body and blood. And if you are in good standing at a church, whether it be here or somewhere else, you can go and take of that and you can remember what it is that Jesus Christ has done for us. You can give your tribute to the king through tithe and offering in those boxes, and we as a church will do our best to steward it well. And we'll be in the back as elders to pray, and we would love to pray with you. And you can sing by standing or kneeling or lifting up your hands where you're at. And so let's think about this, what we're gonna be doing in the next year, and let's respond now in this time of praise.